0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Ezekue. and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, January 7th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of our program later on uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular pan-african newswire report we'll feature dispatches on the destruction of historical sites in gaza uh, by the israeli defense forces there are concerns about a weapons fair taking place in the uk where weapons uh, will be sold and marketed Uh, which uh, could very easily wind up uh, in Gaza and Palestine. The uh, countries in Africa of Tanzania, Malawi, and Zambia are all battling outbreaks of cholera. We'll have details on that as well. In the second hour, we look at the debate over genocide in the international community. We then focus on the upcoming national holiday honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with a segment on the role of the United States government and undermining uh, the civil rights movement during the 1950s and 1960s. Finally, we listened to an address delivered by uh, the moderate leader, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, with the vocalist, Monsieur 30. Let's listen in.
2: Che se vede 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 che i ni waya be missing ayo Mi colorangay i vibwe ko makinde ako tangay Honggirangay na butu kaka bando sama be Narado pesangalo poco Eu sou colando Só que y como la gente que la de la copa no Ese pe, mundo la cagamos de más, mames, se le apame me comi panga y que se la como nadie como la Matan con la banda acá Faltan si le mostré a pedirle No la comina Ay, yo te amé Yo te distingue a mí Fue mi timón Fue mi cena de colgamba La conmigo yo no tiene Me lo pido la que usted Amón, amor Yo te amé Me paro yo puna Yo te digo Es Y me voy Estallira ser na fei, pa' bai, men no na yo kate na fe na ni. de la nova, na ni fe na, gemi. Wolta de de Na só Bavis et a na qui Bon Na yam Papi mukete. Na yam Papi Je le n'a pas Dans Et Ata na meki ba kisha boko koende ngi kelebe osa mabunga mu bisi ata samu na ya bamu samu ata ina konyayo ata ba niyote ata ba mu niyote La la la, le, no Pour les tout
3: de... <métionale> ah. <métionale> ah. <métionale> ah. <métionale> la
2: Eu la te boko no pouco de tempo, eu vou te dar um pouco de tempo, eu vou te dar um pouco de tempo, eu vou te dar um pouco de tempo, Na vou te Papi um pouco Na La saline, on a Que quencha a malucura sin alcoholucan de la niña polla, eh. La mata que pensé que loco la che con lucan de la niña polla, eh. Y epizan a talelo, colale paranga, este en guaraposa, mangona y evite. Con camis me ponemos que le, este en guaraposa, mangona y evite. Este negola le gana a la butualeta, este you <laughs> Yeah. Todo la na me dice Tu papá Tocando se me de mape matoyo Me jala encima si te no quito el saco como Y van a ya mundo al cola mwsia lord Que se va a bailar sin papá nada la canzua y la moto we Il y a un moto aussi, il y a un moto, il y a un moto,
1: collection of uh, various tunes uh, live. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. And uh, we'd like to, of course, thank all of our listeners uh, for uh, tuning in uh, to uh, this program. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. Our lead story deals with the ongoing conflict and bombing and genocide in the gaza strip region of palestine israeli occupation forces have targeted many archaeological historical and holy sites in the besieged gaza strip since the beginning of the war on october the 7th according to the gaza government media office at least 200 archaeological and historical sites were completely or partially destroyed by israel in its ongoing aggression on October 19, an Israeli bombardment damaged part of the Greek Orthodox Church of St. Uh, Porphyrius, uh, located in the Al-Zatun neighborhood east of Gaza City. When the Israeli missile struck the church, at least 500 Palestinians were sheltered there. 20 Palestinians died and several others were wounded. Believed to be the third oldest church in the world, the St. Uh, Porphyrius Greek Orthodox Church in Gaza was originally founded in 425 uh, B.C. C.E. St. Uh, Parferius uh, was named uh, after the 5th century Bishop uh, Parferius, uh, who shepherded the Christian community in Gaza 1,500 years ago. His tomb rests in the northeastern corner of the church. Uh, Parferius uh, is the only Greek Orthodox church in Gaza. There are three churches in Gaza, the Gaza Baptist Church, the Holy Family Catholic Church, and the St. Paul Farias Greek Orthodox Church. Also, the Hammam al-Samra. The Hammam al-Samra is located in the Al-Zatun neighborhood, the heart of the old Gaza city. The ancient bathhouse is one of the main and few remaining Ottoman architectural sites in Gaza. Although it has been around for hundreds of years, it is was still operational. The site was targeted last December uh, by an Israeli bombardment, which led to its almost complete destruction. The Al-Saka House. The Al-Saka House was located in the Shijaya neighborhood east of Gaza City. It was built in the 17th century during the Ottoman rule of Sultan Mehmed IV by Ahmed Al-Saka, or one of the most prestigious merchants at the time. During the Nakba in 1948, it was damaged by a shell and it was later restored. On November the 9th of 2023, Israeli forces targeted and destroyed the 400-year-old house, the al said Hashim Mosque, one of the most prominent in the Gaza Strip. And al said Hashim Mosque is located in the Diraj neighborhood in the heart of the old city. So these are just some of the uh, historical sites that have been destroyed uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces over uh, the last three months. In other news uh, taking place, uh, in Africa, at least five people have been killed by cholera, and 452 others are under quarantine for observation in Kahama District in the Shenyaga region in northwestern Tanzania. An official said uh, just two days ago, Mboni Mhita, the commissioner of the Kahama district, said 452 patients with symptoms of the disease have been put under quarantine in two isolated health centers in Mwinda Kulima and Kagonwa for observation. She told a news conference in the Kahama municipality that the five dead were found in Kagonwa Village uh, between December the 25th and January the 4th, adding uh, they were confirmed to have been killed by the disease after test of their samples. She said most of them had symptoms of cholera, including profuse, watery diarrhea, leg cramps, restlessness, or irritability, vomiting, and thirst. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African also in Malawi, uh, the Minister of Health, Kumbisi Kandoro Shapanda, uh, said two days ago the country needs about $6 million U.S. dollars to cover the deficit of its cholera preparedness and response plan for November 2023 to October of 2024. The minister disclosed this when she updated the nation on the situation of the cholera outbreak, which she said remains very low and sporadic. But the country still could not relax she said the total budget for the cholera epidemic preparedness and response plan is 18.23 million dollars with only 12.27 million dollars available in a financing gap of 5.96 million dollars Chipanda has since requested partners to assist in addressing the gap to enable the country to secure essential supplies for the control of cholera according to the minister Since the country declared cholera no longer a national public health emergency in August, Malawi has been reporting sporadic cases and a few deaths. Also in Zambia, uh, the World Health Organization has pledged to provide Zambia with 1 million doses of cholera vaccines to help the Southern African country fight the waterborne disease. That was according to the state media. They reported this on Friday. Roma Chilenge, uh, the director general of the Zambian National Public Health Institute, said the U.N. agency, through its office in Zambia, has pledged to provide cholera vaccines to help control the cholera outbreak. The state-run Times of Zambia quoted him as saying, he said the country requires about 7 million doses of cholera vaccines, adding that the World Health Organization is also engaged in offering both technical and material support to help the country tackle the waterborne disease. Zambia has been battling a cholera outbreak uh, with the national capital of Lusaka the hardest hit. The country has recorded more than 4,000 cumulative cases and about 150 deaths after fresh outbreaks in October last year. According to the Ministry of Health, about 27 districts in six of the country's 10 provinces have reported cholera cases. And uh, finally, uh, Zambian President Hakande Heslema uh, on Friday called for the concerted effort to tackle rising cholera cases in the country, especially in Lusaka, the country's capital. The Zambian president said the government was monitoring the cholera outbreak and uh, would continue implementing measures to contain its spread. We can defeat cholera if we work together, taking measures to avoid contracting the, contracting the disease is our call to action, he said in a post on his Facebook page. He has since urged citizens to adhere to the guidelines given by health authorities. On Thursday, Minister of Health Sylvia Masibo led a multi-sectorial team to inspect areas in Lusaka that are mostly affected by cholera. The minister expressed concern about the situation in most shanty compounds and fears that the situation could worsen if people do not adhere to preventive measures. With that, though, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website and that's at uh News uh, dot that's panafricannews.blogspot.com. dot and uh, if you'd like to have access uh to today's uh pan african journal this special uh worldwide uh, radio broadcast all you need to do is go uh to our website at the pan african radio network that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now we want to take a break. Uh, we'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week.
2: I and I don't make up. I and I mind to go the same thing. Like I and I, forbearance, got Africa, cry blow. Cry
3: blow.
2: Cry trouble, Africa, cry, free of Africa, cry, Africa, Cry, cry Africa, no trouble Africa, cry,
3: free Africa, cry.
1: Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, January 7th, 2024, and we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown uh, Detroit. And uh, the situation in Palestine, of course, is remains uh, most critical in the uh, – minds of people uh, who, in fact, have um, been concerned about war, about imperialism, and about the whole question of genocide. And, of course, genocide uh, has been charged uh, in regard to what the Israeli Defense Forces are doing, uh, what the United States is doing and supporting. And, of course, uh, this is going to continue uh, to be a major major issue uh as far as the international community is concerned and of course there was the um lawsuit uh filed uh, by the republic of south africa government against uh, the state of israel at the international court of justice in the netherlands let's listen to this report
4: on the issue of genocide in palestine after three months of devastation displacement and the killing of palestinians we're taking a deep dive into the way the story of gaza has been covered a journalist an expert on human rights and another on digital rights on what has taken place the humanitarian catastrophe and the way the media through their news coverage have helped pave the way to a genocide Since the attacks on October 7th, The Listening Post has interviewed a range of experts on the news coverage, what's missing in it, and how it has helped enable the crimes being waged on Palestinians in Gaza. In this special edition, we have compiled three interviews, starting with the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Francesca Albanese. Albanese is an Italian trained in international law. She's been highlighting the duty of journalists to remember and include the context of this story, as well as what international law says about the rights and responsibilities of the occupier and the occupied. Long before October 7th, she was the target of smear campaigns, calls for her dismissal from the UN. Not one to be silenced, she has gone in the other direction, chastising journalists around the world for their biases and the UN for its inaction. I started out by asking Albanese to tell us about some of the interactions she has had with reporters on this story and what those exchanges have revealed.
0: Uh, hi Richard. Uh, it's uneven because I have to say that there, are, there have been a few journalists who have really tried to do um, good job, good coverage, asking me sort of neutral questions to appreciate the facts. But mostly I've had um, a difficult experience with uh, mainstream media in the West because I found I found myself in the uncomfortable position of being challenged on how I would call things or how I would report on things. No, it's not a trope. It's really real. So it seems not to understand what I'm saying. There is an apartheid regime. No, I'm serious. There is an apartheid regime. It's domination. This is not a trope. This is international law. I mean, it was not my intention to to challenge journalists, but it seems that they really wanted to 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 challenge my way of looking at things, which I found disturbing. Because, again, excuse me, but I'm I'm here to report on on things that I've analyzed, verified, triangulated, and, yeah, (laughs) I found it a bit surprising.
4: That relates to something that you've said about today's political landscape. You say it's marked by historical amnesia, traditional media plays a critical role in that. And that many people are living in an alternative reality. What do you mean exactly by that?
0: Yes, yes, Richard, because this is not just a conflict. And calling, calling it just a conflict is a, is a misnomer. Because this is an occupation that has been ongoing for 56 years. So very limited uh, consideration for that, but also very limited consideration for the enduring trauma that also the Palestinians have in themselves because um, while there is recognition for the the, the tragedy that the Jewish people have lived through and through across centuries that culminated in the horror of the Holocaust, there is very little recognition of what the Palestinians had endured as a people since 1947. Since the, and, and through the creation of the State of Israel. They were never allowed to come to a closure. And again, this is not about Hamas. This is really the Palestinian as a people, as they try to resist a violent occupation in the occupied Palestinian territory. There is no Hamas military presence in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, and still over 200 people have been killed by soldiers and armed settlers. Do you see any connection to it in, uh, in mainstream media?
4: Palestinians have heard the calls, as we have, from Israeli officials and voices in the Israeli media for what amounts to ethnic cleansing of Gaza. As a lawyer, are you surprised by the evidence that they are willingly providing of what appears to be the intent to commit what are, in fact, war crimes? There seems to be this sense of impunity over their work.
0: It's surprising yes because the israelis have never been so explicit in admitting responsibility for specific incidents one of the things that were absolutely shocking was the the bombing of the jabalia refugee camp because the israeli army knew that there were about 400 civilians palestinian civilians including hostages and nonetheless the camp was bombed heavily and hundreds of Palestinians were killed, hundreds were injured and a number of hostages was reportedly killed in that case. So yeah, they've been quite outspoken about their intention including calling for the erasure of Gaza, the flattening of Gaza. <laughs> We have seen before what happens to people when this, this fury becomes, becomes popular. And this genocidal call that we have heard from politicians and, and military leaders in Israel is also amplified in various groups in the Israeli society.
5: So
0: in the face of this madness, as someone who has seen genocidal horror happening in other parts of the world, I say it's clear that this, has, this has, is taking the Israeli society to a very dark place, and this is why I say, in the interest of the Palestine, both Palestinians and the Israelis, this must be stopped
4: you've faced a lot of criticism um, for some of the things that you've said and You faced some of that criticism prior to October 7th. Some cases you've been defamed. Pressure groups have been on your case to resign. What kind of things are they saying about you? Are they succeeding, Ms. Albanese, in making your job more difficult?
0: Look, these groups and they I mean they are all connected one way or another because they say exactly the same things that are repeated exactly in the same way, sometimes sometimes in the same sequence, over and over. And the accusations against me are that I'm an anti-Semite, that I am pro Hamas and I support terrorism.
6: Francesca Albanese is someone who pretends to be neutral. Uh, Neither her position nor her own background have anything to do with impartiality.
0: Is it succeeding? I don't think so. Because eventually more and more people keep on asking me to to speak and to speak out. Wherever I go, uh, speaking to governments or speaking to the media, off record, people know. People tell me or let me understand that the situation is better known than it would seem in the public debate. But there is a lot of censorship and self-censorship because people don't want to be confronted with the allegations I I have to face on a daily basis, which in my case don't distract me. I keep focused on what I have to do. But I think that it's necessary to tackle this issue at the global level because it's, uh, it's now also the weaponization of anti-Semitism and the level of smear against anyone who utters a word of criticism against Israel and everyone who utters a word of solidarity with the Palestinians faced such a huge and evil um, campaign. I mean, I also spoke with, you know, human rights defenders in the Pacific Islands where they say, well, we face even arrest and detention if we uh, come out and protest in solidarity with the Palestinian people against what's happening in the Gaza Strip. So there is a crushing of freedom of assembly, a crushing of freedom of expression and of the right to protest that is absolutely unprecedented at this global level and of this scale.
4: Francesca Albanese, UN Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Palestinian Territories, you're up against it? Uh, We understand you're very busy. We're very grateful for the time that you've made for us today.
0: Thank you, Richard.
4: The blockade of the Gaza Strip is both physical and digital. Israel has forced periodic communications blackouts on Gaza. It has the power to do that. And social media, a key information source, is now brimming with disinformation and hate speech. Big tech has been taking down content and its sensitivities on this story seem to reflect Israel's. Palestinian voices have often been muted. That is where we began with Marwa Fatafta of the digital rights group Access Now on the information siege that Israelis have imposed on Gaza. Uh,
7: Palestinians in Gaza are under a complete siege and there is of course a near complete information blackout Um, During Israel's uh, bombardment campaign of the Gaza Strip, um, two of the three main telecommunications lines or companies in the Gaza Strip have been bombarded. Um, People are relying currently on only one line of communications with Internet and telecommunications disruptions. Um, And that means that people in Gaza are not able to access information, not able to check on their loved ones, they're not able to seek life-saving information, and they're cut off from the world. Um, They have fewer and fewer opportunities to share and tell their stories uh, and to document human rights abuses and, and war crimes. Internet shutdowns provide a convenient cover for perpetrators of atrocities, of human rights abuses, uh, to commit those in, in the dark, uh, to cover the trails of their crimes, uh, and to um, impede or hinder any future possibility of accountability and, and justice.
4: In the first half of this program, we examined some of the genocidal rhetoric that's been coming from Israeli officials and other Israeli figures. How much of that language are you seeing being mirrored online, the calls for violence, the unverified claims?
7: There is a barrage of um, hate speech, incitement to violence, content that is uh, dehumanizing of Palestinians, Islamophobic content, um, anti-Semitic content, and that is all circulating, unfortunately, uh, with little moderation uh, from social media companies. There are, of course, many utterances from Israeli officials on social media um, that shows their clear intent on committing genocide, including, for instance, most recently, uh, by Prime Minister Netanyahu on X, formerly known as Twitter, that this fight and this war is a war between children of lightness and children of darkness, between humanity and the law of, uh, of, of jungle. And it raises a question about to what extent social media companies are complicit in entertaining and housing and amplifying uh, these genocidal um, rhetorics that are clearly in violation of international humanitarian law and international law in general?
4: On that point, since Hamas's attack on October 7th, we've seen the Israeli government flood social media with ads, with graphic and provocative imagery. What are you seeing there on that side of things? And how willingly have these online platforms played host to Israeli government messaging?
7: Since Hamas's attack on, on Israel on October 7th, um, the Israeli government has launched a social media campaign, I would say an aggressive social media campaign, to um, shape the narrative and the conversation online. Um, we've seen, uh, for example, the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs had run up to... 86 ads on YouTube, uh, some of which shows indeed graphic content um, equating Hamas to ISIS and also showing the, the impact of, of the attacks. And it's clear that, you know, paid targeted advertisement uh, has become a weapon of war. Governments that have the resources and the capacity to produce such material can use these platforms in order to spread war propaganda and in this context to justify the collective punishment of Palestinians and um, war crimes and war crimes against humanity that we see unfolding before before our eyes.
4: Palestinians are also saying that social media companies have been taking down their content threatening to close their accounts. Some say they're being shadow banned outright. Tell us what examples you're seeing And are these acts of censorship on these various platforms affecting voices on both sides?
7: We've seen users' accounts being shut down, including very notable users and journalists whose voices are very important. There's also been arbitrary decisions uh, made when when it comes to removing content. One major concern that is repeatedly being reported is the so-called shadow banning, and whereas Companies don't really use that term. Um, I've witnessed it myself, uh, and I've seen many re- users reporting it that you know their their content is being uh, demoted, uh, downranked. The engagement with this content is is significantly reduced in comparison to other content not related to Palestine. Unfortunately. We thought that in 2021, we've settled matters, as in it was clear um, that this systematic and discriminatory approach to moderating Palestinian content has been exposed. Um, There's no way for platforms to gaslight users or civil society organizations that this is uh, just the result of a technical glitch, which surprisingly we don't see in other crises, like when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, we have seen actually proactive Uh, statements from different companies uh, uh, stating their unwavering commitment to upholding Ukrainians' right to freedom of expression. Such commitment to human rights have not been extended to Palestinians, despite of what companies claim the user's experience and the reality of what we've uh, documenting uh, states otherwise.
4: Marwa Fatafta of Access Now. Thank you for speaking with us today here at The Listening Post. Thank you. Israel has said that its goal in Gaza is to destroy Hamas but its attacks on Palestinians have also escalated on the West Bank where Hamas has no authority or military presence. That violence is usually provoked by Israeli settlers. Prior to October 7th, almost 200 Palestinians had been killed on the West Bank in the previous 10 months. That number has more than doubled since. Maryam Barghouti is a Palestinian journalist based in Ramallah on the West Bank. She's been interviewed by multiple media outlets, and some of those exchanges, like this one with the UK Channel Sky News, have been heated.
8: Dozens of Palestinians are killed. We call it a slaughter. We have called it Not a massacre thousands. this time. because it, yeah. No, no, I'm talking about individuals. But could you just answer? I'm just interested. For Mariam, ma- yeah.
5: If you would like cool. to talk to journalist, about indiv- at least come with me with the right information, please. I began by
4: asking Mariam Barghouti about what she's seen in the Western media's coverage of this story.
5: The way international journalists attempt to trope Palestinians and delegitimize, as well as deny the crimes against them, has, has not only become vicious, in in the way that journalists are framing it, like that interview, but it has increased and become lethal in a way that it is a complete pro-genocidal stance by journalists that claim to be um, objective, that claim to be nonpartisan, that claim to be supporting um, the truth to support accuracy for their audiences but it's not just common. It is being encouraged by editors and policymakers, whether directly or indirectly.
4: So you don't see that as someone not fully understanding the context and bringing the context to the interview. You see that more as an intention.
5: Absolutely, as journalists, it is our job to do our due diligence prior to bringing in anyone who is giving a testimony. Um, So to claim ignorance requires you to quit your job and go and learn.
4: Since October 7th, uh, journalists from around the world have flown into into the region. A lot of them are still based in Israel. Some of them have embedded with the Israeli military to get into Gaza. How difficult is it for journalists to get into the West Bank and for those who haven't been to the West Bank to cover the story, What are they missing?
5: It's relatively difficult for journalists to enter the West Bank only in comparison to previous times. But Israel is placing restrictions and is assigning things like minders to different bureau chiefs and international reporters in the region. And that is someone that responds and operates under the command of the Israeli military to attempt and coerce, manipulate, um, as well as pressure journalists to cover in a certain angle or to deny information from audiences. But nonetheless, journalists still have the capacity to challenge this and come into the West Bank. The persons that they are bringing on to speak on the situation are the very people that are committing the crimes against Palestinians, that is Israeli military spokespersons, um, that is Israeli policymakers and settlers. And at the same time, Negating the Palestinian testimony, and if they do speak with Palestinians, it is always an attempt to frame a two-sidedism. But there is no two sides to this, not just because it's a false equivalence between colonizer and colonized, or but because journalists are only showing one side, and that is the Israeli side. And unfortunately, what we have seen more than that is a negation and a denial of the information and news that local journalists have as though that is inferior rather than recognizing that local journalists are the experts on this situation even though their lives are at increased risk um, from Israeli repression as we have seen in their targeting in Gaza.
4: Many Western and international media outlets simply brand this as a war between Israel and Hamas. How accurate is that framing given everything that we've been hearing from Israeli officials on the record? targeting civilians in Gaza. How accurate is the framing? How dangerous is it?
5: It is so dangerous to take what is happening to Palestinians and reduce it to the title of an Hamas-Israel war. This is not a war between Hamas and Israel. This is a war against Palestinians in all um, geographical locations within Palestine as well as outside of Palestine reminding that 50% of the population is in forced exile um, or are refugees abroad. So to frame it as that is a reductionist approach, and it is an attempt to continue the illustration of Palestinians as terrorists because of the, the association that was made of what Hamas is. We see the Israeli military, they closed down a printing shop downtown Ramallah just this morning, and the flyer on the door that they plastered was Hamas equals ISIS. So it goes to show you how manipulative that narrative is. And then there is no mention of Gaza being besieged for close to two decades. There is no mention of the same thing happening in Gaza right now. Has happened before at a smaller scale, because what we have seen is transcending all trends of violence that Palestinians have witnessed or we have witnessed in the region since 1948. So to claim that it is a Hamas and Israel war, is either an inability to actually do the due diligence and look into the context and explain that to your audience, or it is intentional, and that means you are being complicit in genocide.
4: One last question for you. We've seen some amazing journalism coming out of Gaza, Palestinians, too many of whom have paid with their lives, uh, making a name for themselves, getting the recognition that they deserve. Can you give us a few names of some good follows of Palestinian journalists on the West Bank, people whose work is worthy of our following?
5: It's so difficult to speak about journalists here.
3: Tell um, me about it.
5: Considering just the targeting.
3: Yeah.
5: It's heartache. And, and as a reporter, you know, we, I think we forget that these are our peers. And it also you know we're not advocating just for the protection of journalists, but as reporters and journalists, we're advocating for ourselves um, to to remain safe. But in terms of coverage, I think there are multiple reporters and news organizations that are actually going against the grain and going against the restrictions that are being imposed by editorial policies abroad at least. Al-Jazeera has been doing incredible coverage um, of what's been happening all across Palestine, not just Gaza and the West Bank, but in its entire context. We There are organizations such as Mondeweiss, which has also been reporting excellent um, in print uh, on the West Bank. We have Middle East Eye that has also been showcasing excellent reporting on the West Bank, as well as highlighting and covering the disinformation and mistranslation that has been happening within international media organizations. But, I mean, in in terms of individuals, you can see the works of people like Satin Alwan, uh, you can see the works of Mohammed Al-Kurd, although he is not here, but he is able to amplify a lot of the coverage that is being sent from local journalists abroad, but yes. I'm sorry I don't have maybe two specific names.
4: That's fine. That's fine. Mariam Barghouti, thank you for joining us today here at the Listening Post.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Welcome back. You've been watching
4: a special edition of our program, a compilation of our most informative and at times heartfelt interviews on Israel's genocidal assault. On the gaza strip we'll stay on this story to see where it goes from here and how it's reported and we'll see you next time here at the listening post
1: welcome back uh, you're listening to the pan-african journal special worldwide radio broadcast for sunday uh, january seventh, uh, 2024 we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown detroit we'll take a break we'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week Welcome back and that was uh funkadelic uh with the track entitled hit it and quit it you're listening to the pan-african journal special worldwide radio broadcast for sunday uh, january 7th uh, 2024 we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown detroit and uh, right now we want to move into our mlk tribute uh coming up uh just one week from tomorrow we'll represent the 95th anniversary of the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, the leader of the civil rights and peace movements uh, of the 1950s and 1960s. Dr. King was martyred uh, in April, on April 4th of 1968. During the course of his uh, political life, uh, Dr. King uh, was not only spied upon uh, by the Federal Bureau of Investigation and other uh, law enforcement agencies. They were also subjected to destabilization campaigns uh, related to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the civil rights movement uh, as a whole. Uh, One of the uh, informants uh, was uh, from Memphis, Tennessee, a man by the name of Ernest Withers, who was a World War II veteran uh, who was a photographer uh, had been a former police officer in the city of Memphis and had, uh, some very interesting and even corrupt, uh, elements, uh, within his background. Let's listen to a report on the uncovering of uh, Ernest Withers as an informant uh, for the FBI, uh, against the civil rights and black power movements uh, of the 1960s. Uh, that, uh, A revelation was uncovered uh, by the Commercial Appeal, uh, the corporate newspaper in Memphis, by a reporter there. They, of course, uh, filed a lawsuit uh, against the FBI to uh, have the files, the informant files of Ernest Withers released and declassified. Uh, That happened several uh, years ago. And uh, this interview uh, takes up that question. Let's listen in to the question of Spying, FBI Destabilization of the Civil Rights Movement.
6: Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Shackman. Controversy surrounding the FBI is nothing new. Its tentacles have often seemed to be everywhere, its mission and motives not always pure, and its success often overblown, and its many failures often underreported. We see it today in the murky FBI failures and fingerprints with respect to the Boston bombing, its failures on 9-11, ignored warnings on the recent Parkland shooting, and what we're just starting to find out about its connections with respect to the Pulse nightclub and San Bernardino. So many secret FBI connections to so many disasters. Historically the story is the same. One such example is the FBI's infiltration and spying on the civil rights movement. It's a story with many players but at the center of the lens is famed civil rights photographer Ernest Withers. The story of Withers role in the civil rights movement and his connection to the FBI has come to the surface mostly because of the dogged determination in real journalism Of my guest, Mark Perskia. Mark Perskia is a journalist for the Commercial Appeal, the daily newspaper in Memphis, Tennessee, where he's worked for the past 29 years. He's won numerous national awards for his writing and investigative reporting. And it is my pleasure to welcome Mark Perskia here to talk about his book, A Spy in Canaan How the FBI Used a Famous Photographer to infiltrate the civil rights movement. Mark, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Who, What, Why. Thank you for having me, Jeff. First of all, to, for those that don't know, talk a little bit about who Ernest Withers was, this famed photographer.
8: Ernest Withers, uh, although he's not a household name, was a very famous photographer. He was a big photographer in, in the movement, the civil rights movement. And He was born and raised in Memphis. Um, he He was a Police officer briefly for the city of Memphis, uh, he wound up getting caught up in a corruption scandal and got kicked off the force uh, around 1951. And as it turns out, that was probably the best thing that ever happened to him because he began to focus on his photography. He 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 learned photography when he was in the the army, uh, in the army photography school. He was he fought in the Pacific, and starting in the early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, he opened a studio on Beale Street. He he went to work as a freelance photographer for the Tri-State Defender, which was the satellite operation of the Chicago Defender. Um, he worked for Jet Magazine. When his career parallels the civil rights movement, he came of age as the movement started to blossom, and he started getting all these great assignments going out taking these magnificent pictures. He was there, took this fabulous picture of Dr. King riding a first integrated bus in Montgomery, Alabama in 1956. In 1955, he helped cover the trial of Emmett Till's killers and was in court when Emmett's great uncle, Moe's Wright, stood up and pointed an accusing finger at the killers from the witness stand It was a haunting picture and an incredible moment the judge had forbid any photography during session Ernest defied him took this picture for the ages but this stuff would go on on and on and on he covered he covered the Little Rock 9 you know the integration of Central High and Little Rock the assassination of Medgar Evers the integration of Ole Miss um, the Memphis sanitation strikes, all these big skirmishes civil rights skirmishes he was right there in the front lines and he had incredible access to the leaders and the the foot soldiers of the movement.
6: Talk about that, how he began to get that access, because the access that he had really became quite remarkable.
8: Yes. Well, I mean, it started with his photography business here in Memphis. He, um, you know, just running that studio he got to know everybody and being a being a, a, a patrolman he walked a beat on beale street everybody in memphis knew ernest and as the movement grew and he got out there with his cameras everybody in the in the movement knew him he was just he was a a very likable affable guy with a big personality um who who's you know had this talent for taking good pictures and when he would you know the 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 white media largely ignored a lot of the, these developments of the uh, the movement. But, you know, Ernest was there, and his pictures would run in African-American papers all over the country. And the leaders of the movement, you know, Andrew Young and others have said, you know, we really look to him as somebody who would get our message out. And so I think his his profile grew as the movement's profile grew, and it really is a remarkable kind of a mirrored story there.
6: And to what extent did his photographs begin to make it into the mainstream press at the time?
8: Well, you know, the picture of Dr. King, um, I'm, I don't recall if that ran at, at that time um, in the white press. It, it By the 60s, certainly some of the big papers that the New York Times were picking this stuff up, but really largely, I mean, it wasn't until years later that he was lionized, you know, that people realized what a treasure this guy was. And, uh, you know, when he died in 2007, he had a, uh, an obituary in the New York times and was eulogized by, by the mayor here in Memphis and saying, you know, not everybody gets a, an obituary in the New York times. And it's true. I mean, it really speaks to, you know, the level of, you know, his work, the things that he did for the movement and you know and and what a, what a kind of a a hidden treasure he really was.
6: Of course, the other thing that he did, which which you have researched for so long and write about here in A Spy in Canaan, is that he became an informant for the FBI. Talk a little bit about how he was recruited by this FBI agent William Lawrence and how this all happened.
8: The earliest records that we have, we we got this big release of records through a lawsuit against the FBI he was first doing something for the fbi in 1958 it's kind of murky we don't know what it is but clearly by 1961 he was recruited by lawrence to be his personal confidential informant and they were kept crossing paths out there on the civil rights trail uh william lawrence bill lawrence was the fbi's domestic intelligence guy here in memphis for the better part of a quarter century from the late 40s until 1970 and he and his colleagues eviscerated the communist party here in the 1950s and and by the 60s as all this unrest started blossoming uh he his focus shifted a bit to you know the movement and um you know a larger broader view of uh, agitators um, subversives people that they view very dimly these a lot of these northern activists who came down here um, they were coming in 1961 to an operation called tent city in Fayette County which is in the Memphis area where sharecroppers who had tried to vote were being kicked off their farms and they they started living in this kind of you know oaky kind of tent settlement and as these agitators were coming in, you know, people of the FBI viewed as agitators uh, from the North to assist them, uh, there was a great need by the FBI, they felt, to monitor this, to make sure there weren't communist influences, to, you know, really police it. And that's where Ernest really started making his mark with the FBI. That, and at the same time in 1961, the Nation of Islam started started raising its profile down here they opened a mosque on Beale Street and you know Ernest again through his access he knew everybody he could tell them who they were you know this guy this is where he lives this is his occupation these are his relatives and as they built these dossiers these were all the kinds of deep personal details that they wanted to know they wanted to know who was who who was connected to who who they were you know identification photos that he shot helped build these dossiers as the as the as the FBI tried to track this growing movement you a know, whole spectrum and you know in Memphis here you know the labor movement the peace movement the civil rights movement and they were really really trying to to contain these activists
6: and to what extent was Lawrence Bill Lawrence working independently to what extent was he taking orders directly from the bureau in washington talk a little bit about that relationship
8: well of course you know the bureau they 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 ran all these reports you know a, a good number of the reports that Lawrence would file these you know they're called letterhead memos they would go back to Washington um you know there was some independence um you know for for some years here um you know Ernest because when in 1961 when Lawrence was trying to recruit him, uh, he had to get approval from Washington and he, there was a problem because, you know, what they called his reliability test because he had this previous experience with the Memphis Police Department. He got fired in a, in a bootlegging scandal. He wasn't considered the kind of guy that they really wanted to trust. Although Ernest, you know, Bill Lawrence trusted him. And so what he did is he kept, uh, initially kept Lawrence, uh, kept Withers in the status for two years as what they called a potential confidential informant. He would direct him around um, kind of in a probationary status. Usually that kind of status will only last a matter of months, but he kept him there for two years in that status and then temporarily downgraded him for a few years as to a sort of a lesser informant, a confidential source, it was kind of a reference desk in the black community, really, uh, but still would be directing him you know to go out and get pictures of certain individuals information and they would meet um, minimal minimally about once every month, you know in lean times, and when things were really hot, like during the Memphis sanitation strike in one thousand nine hundred and sixty eight it was uh, virtually a daily thing where they would be meeting so uh, Lawrence had some. Some independence, and I think he he took advantage of that because he knew he had a good informant. And he many times you'll see these lines in these reports where um, that Ernest Withers is most conversant in all matters in the black community, and um, is just a you know what they considered a top-notch racial informant who could deliver the information that they wanted.
6: And was his information about the movement at large? And how frequently was he reporting, or was he really looking? At people like King and others, specifically individuals,
8: he, he was looking at the whole spectrum. Sometimes they would, you know, they wanted him to focus on on in on specific individuals, like for example, um, 1968 in the in the weeks before Dr. King was shot. Here, his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the whole he, he'd bring his whole entourage here as he began lending his support to the sanitation strike. One guy they were really particularly uh zeroed in on was James Bevel. James Bevel was King's director of direct action. He was uh uh considered uh you know some people referred to him as a, a crazy genius. He had some personal issues but was considered quite brilliant. He was the father of the the Children's Crusade in Birmingham where the 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 decision was made to bring all these young kids out to march against Bull Connor. And, um, you know, that is considered a pivotal moment in that, in that movement down there. He also influenced Dr. King to come out against the war. Bevel was looked at as a communist and, and, and flirting with treason really. Um, so, you know, withers when, when Bevel was here, um, was kind of following him around and he, he passed on reports about, um, one time he followed him to Lemoyne Owen, which is a, um, uh historically black college here, and you know the all white f b i had no chance of picking up information short of getting this through withers and uh bevel gives a um impromptu lecture there. And according to the report coming back from Withers, has given this very virulent Black Power speech, um, kind of thing that is riling up. You know, by the FBI's view, is getting everybody riled up. And that they looked at uh, Bevel as a, as a dangerous guy. Um, you know, Ernest also passed on personal tidbits about um, Bevel's, you know, personal life. Said he had weird sexual habits and 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 other little tidbits had had left his wife and and whatnot. But they he he could focus in on a specific uh individual when they wanted he also helped them just cover this broad spectrum of unrest you know the um you know the sanitation strike here was a was a labor movement really and so it intersected with labor and civil rights and and um, you know all of these organizations from the s c l c to the American Federation of state county municipal employees to the NAACP black power. Uh, they had various black power groups here. Um, the, the new left, um, campus radicalism. He really touched on all of it because all he had to do, he he was a newsman and he went out, he had that cover, uh, perfect cover of being a newsman Had a legitimate purpose for being in meetings and, and, you know, was welcomed into a lot of meetings that other newsmen couldn't get into. So, uh, he was valuable to them on, on on many levels.
6: In fact, the FBI had other informants inside the SCLC, inside the organization.
8: Right, definitely. Well, you know, the most famous one would be James Harrison, um, who was you know based out of Atlanta and uh, was an accountant. Um, he was exposed in the congressional hearings in the '70s after the movement had had died down, and um, you know his his role was basically keeping them apprised of their their financial affairs but he would also pass on details about you know king's itinerary his travel and this is kind of probably one of the considered one of the most notorious episodes of the FBI using an informant in, in, in ways that could be very damaging you know that he would they'd get the FBI would get his hotel uh itinerary and beat him to the hotel and you know bug the rooms and, you know trying to trying to catch him in some you know some uh, philandering episode so uh yeah that was the, but that's probably the most famous uh i think informant that we know of that was inside the svlc
6: what was the motivation as far as we understand it for withers to do what he did
8: well really i think money was the big thing um he had a big family he had eight kids to feed he was constantly hustling, hustling a living. I mean, he would, and he was all over the map. You know, he had his studio photography. When when uh, Negro, Negro League baseball was still going on, he would go down there and take pictures of the, of the star players and sell them to fans. He was down on Beale Street and knew all the, all the big bluesmen back in the time before they were even famous. You know, like BB King, Howling Wolf, and others, and would sell pictures to fans. And so he was always hustling up a living. So money was always a concern to him, and he wasn't getting paid. A whole lot of money through the FBI, but most informants got nothing at all. So, um, you know, he what the FBI told us in when we settled the suit and had to stipulate how much he was paid. It was twenty thousand dollars over these eighteen years, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but when you factor in inflation, um, you know, that's as much as one hundred and fifty thousand today. So you divide that over eighteen years. Let's say he's getting six to eight thousand dollars a year. I mean, that's going to help put food on the table and it's going to help, you know, buy gas and pay a mortgage and nothing to sneeze at. So I think money was a big factor. But, you know, politics played a role, too. You know, Ernest was more conservative and older than a lot of these movement activists. I mean, he was born in 1922. He was a good 10 to 20 years older than a lot of these activists, and particularly when it came to the war. Now Ernest would go out and cover these marches. They would send him out a lot of times with a specific purpose. When you read these reports, of under the pretext of be, posing as a newsman is how they would put it in these reports. But was sent out and told get identification pictures, establish identities, and that's what he was doing. I don't think he, that would be any big problem for him. Him being a World War II veteran, uh, he had he was heavily invested in the military. He had at that point in the you know mid to late 60s he had three sons in the military and one in the front lines in in Vietnam. So, you know, money his his more conservative view played a role. But also, too, he always wanted to be a policeman. Um, You know, he was a, a policeman for those first three years, 1948 to 1951. So I think he just liked that. Basically, what he was doing was policing the movement and trying to root out the guys that, you know, the FBI considered to be bad guys.
6: How much of it came out of his bitterness? Over the way he was thrown off the police force.
8: No, it's a good question. I, you know, I, I really don't know. I mean, I've read a number of interviews of, that he gave over the years, and he he. Would give a variety of reasons for him being thrown off the force, you know, that racism being a factor, uh, rivalries. Uh, they didn't like the fact that he had a photo business on the side. Um, you know, of course, the racism was very prevalent here. I mean, you can't discount that out of hand. Uh, but you know, the, I've been through his whole personnel file. They did a very, very in-depth investigation of this bootlegging incident. It was a really petty crime, but I mean, he was in in concert, uh, acting in concert with a bootlegger, and they were selling you know whiskey and splitting the profits you know he'd do this like you know buy the whiskey you know when he was walking a beat and and, give it to the bootlegger but you know so bitterness no doubt I think did factor into it but it's hard it's hard to know exactly because there's no specific verbiage in any of these reports that that talk to that
6: what did he know about how widespread the FBI's infiltration and investigation of the Civil Rights Movement was? Did he see what he was doing as somewhat isolated, or did he have a sense of how wide a net the FBI had thrown over the movement?
8: That is a good question, too. uh, no doubt he'd seen the FBI in in, in operation in, in, in the big picture. He had, the, the reports make it clear he knew the kind of person that they were after. They are, off, there's often verbiage in these reports that he needs to be alert for so-and-so, you know, these agitators out there in the uh, in, in, who were coming into to Fayette County and, and the people who were coming into Memphis. So um, w- how much did he know that how wide this net was? That's a good question. Um, you, one interesting passage in these records is going back to 1958. The very first incident that we know of, that I know of, of him informing for the FBI was in Little Rock in 1958, when he was continuing to report on the school crisis over there, and he showed up, shows up at the um, the field office over there in Little Rock in, with Simeon Booker. Simeon Booker, of course, was a giant journalist. You know, he, w- he wrote for Jet Magazine. He worked with Ernest on different stories. Booker kind of had his own controversy as an informer, although I don't, there's no record he ever got paid and was ever actually naming names or informing on anyone specifically. But he had a very cozy relationship with the FBI. Um, he, You know, Booker, in interviews he gave, said, you know, that when I went down south, I called the FBI because I wanted that protection. He was more, he was very much afraid of, you know, the local yokels, the police department, these racists who, who might do him harm. And he felt some sense of protection with the FBI. And he'd write little puff pieces about them sometimes, about the good job that they were doing. But I think there was some influence there. Um, you know, early on in the in the early days of the movement, this is the late 50s. There was still this innocence, and that, that, and, and that's the way. I think Ernest was kind of primed for this. And so what happens is he winds up getting in really deep. And by the mid to late 60s, the FBI continues to try to recruit, you know, black journalists. And there's kind of this open defiance that they're not going to have. Because by then, I think everyone had wised up to what the FBI was doing. But, you know, Ernest isn't so deep at that point. um, It's like there's no turning back.
6: Given his own views, how did he feel? And, And was it part of his motivation the degree to which the anti-war movement and some of the black radical groups were becoming so much a part of and conflated with the civil rights movement.
8: Yes, I think that definitely factored in. Again, he was a World War II veteran, I think a patriot. I think his views very much paralleled that of middle America. You know, the war, you know, it's kind of interesting. We have the benefit now of hindsight, and we can see things, you know, that, you know, Vietnam Wars branded as an unjust war, but at that time, you know the majority of Americans, including African Americans, supported that war. They certainly were not in favor of King's opposition to the war, so yeah, I mean, I think all of that played into it the you know the the radicalism he didn't he didn't go for a lot of this marching in the street stuff. Um, you know Memphis had been the movement throughout the '50s and '60s was largely controlled here by the NAACP and they they were quite a conservative organization when you compare them to other civil rights groups. They believed, you know, of course that you're gonna win your rights through litigation in court and a lot of this direct action stuff took a long time to take root in Memphis because there simply wasn't the the stomach for it. What did he think of Dr. King? I think he, he viewed him as a hero. I think King had established himself certainly by the late 60s as, you know, kind of the the face of the movement. Um, I know that he had problems with King's tactics. Um, There was uh, a very close King associate who moved here to Memphis. You're going to know him when I mention him, Reverend James Lawson. Mm -hmm. James Lawson was, you know, of course, a movement icon. I mean, he was kind of the father of the sit-in movements. Uh, uh in in Nashville the the freedom rider movement was kind of run out of Nashville for being considered too radical but in 1962 he moved to Memphis and almost instantly the fbi's antenna is up and, and ernest is kicking back you know detailed personal details about him and and um you know um saying that he's a potential thorn in the side of the movement here um you know because of this direct action stuff you know they're getting in the streets and the sit-ins and that sort of thing and um and you know and passed on details dozens of times you know like he at one point tells the fbi that Lawson is Planning to coach young men in ways to dodge the draft. That he's planning a, a trip to communist-controlled Czechoslovakia. You know that he's um, that he's uh, he even passed on details once about a sermon that he gave. That you know said that he was questioning the virgin birth of Christ. Um, I think King's tactics, although they're viewed now retrospectively, we looked at him as nonviolent, nonviolent versus the more militant, aggressive. You know, movement, you know, revolutionaries or whatnot. But in its days, particularly and going back to sixty-three, nonviolence didn't really mean the same thing. Nonviolence was a militant in the early days. In those early years of the sixties, it was someone who was going to get out in the streets and march, like they were doing in Birmingham in Mm sixty-three, and that was not something that was going to go over real well here in Memphis. James Lawson had a had a rough go of it for. Several years while he was here, he was kind of pushed to the side by the more conservative movement leaders here. And, you know, it wasn't until really 1968 when the the whole volatility of the sanitation strike broke out that Lawson really became this figure that we recognize today as, a you know, know, a, a, a movement leader.
6: Did Withers have concerns about the FBI going too far in what it was doing?
8: Another good question possibly you know there are no records that speak to that so it's hard to say um you know some people have have speculated or suggested that that he kind of played the role of a double agent and that he was um that he would withhold information and it's quite possible he did um he certainly put them off on you know certain people that they were zeroing in on some individuals, he'd say, you know, this guy's cool. He, he's not, he's not, he's not a threat to anybody. Um, I know there's a one report where, you know, the FBI, again, all white FBI, they, you know, have very little insight into what's going on in the black community. And so many of these young men who began, you know, wearing dashikis and wearing their hair in the big Afro hairstyle. Um, the FBI was zeroing in on them and, and, you know, Ernest tells them, you know, hey look, you know, this is just a fad. This is not these guys aren't revolutionaries. He he helped them think through a lot of things. Um so, you know, um whether he went too far I think is a is a intriguing question that's probably gonna take a lot more digging to really get to that. I don't know whether we'll ever get to it, you know, but it certainly is, is a possibility that, that he did.
6: And speaking of digging, in the couple of minutes that we have left, talk a little bit about your journey on this story, how long it's been going on, and really what you had <laughs> to go through from a litigation perspective to get this information out of the
3: FBI.
8: Right. Well, you know, this is it has been a long, interesting journey. Um, of course, I first learned about this, Way back in 1997, um, and I've been a reporter here for 29 years of the Commercial Appeal, uh, in 1997, uh, James Earl Ray, King's assassin, was still alive, and I was covering his hearings. Uh, he was trying to get out of prison. He was dying of liver disease and wanted to go home, and uh, you know, it was floating all number of pleadings before the criminal court alleging various conspiracies. and. It was a big media story. I mean, it was you know national and and uh, international because King's family endorsed these these stories, and King's younger son Dexter actually went and visited Ray in prison, shook his hand, and said, you know, we'll do everything in our power to get you out of here. So you know, I'm writing all. They, I got really wide latitude at that point because of the you know the, the breadth of this story to you know go and look into a lot of these various conspiracy claims and that led me to a lot of different people. I was interviewing former police uh, officers, FBI agents, military intelligence and this is when I met this FBI agent who told me confidentially that Withers was an informant and I learned a little bit at that time about him but I never pursued that as a story because the agent said he'd deny it and there was really no footing to go forward. It was only after Ernest died in 2007 and I filed a Freedom of Information Act request in 2008. That uh, in, It took like a year or two after that when I finally got information that uh, revealed his code number, his FBI, and they call it a source symbol number, ME338R. And I was able to track that through other documents and figure out some things that he was doing for the FBI, and then eventually met the uh, the daughter of Bill Lawrence, the agent who ran Withers. And Lawrence, of course, was dead by then, but she had found and saved a lot of his handwritten notes that talked about Ernest and this led to more stories and you know we felt very firmly that we'd established in, through a newspaper investigation that he was an informant and we wanted his informant file but the FBI denied that said you know he never was an informant so we sued them in a Freedom of Information Act suit and eventually they had to admit in court he was an informant and we had this mediated settlement and they released all these records all oh, the whole time, you know, contending before that, that he never was an informant. And the law actually allowed them to do that because there's a law that says that, um, you know, informant records are exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. And the agency can pretend like they don't even exist. And that's what they did. Yeah. I mean, they lied. They said, you know, hey, sorry, we don't have anything. So, I mean, it, it was very much an uphill battle, long drawn out. Um, we spent just in litigating the suit, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. They wound up paying almost all of it back to us in the settlement. So um, in the end, we've got all these records that are there for anybody to see. They're in the public domain, and I think it really it helps flesh out this, this uh, insidious history here that, uh, you know, there's, just, there's a whole lot more to learn about it. But, you know, I think this was a big step.
6: Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Thank you so much,
8: Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you.
6: And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, January 7th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit, and that was a report on uh, African-American photographer and FBI informant Ernest Withers, uh, who lived in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, during uh, the uh, mid-20th century and late 20th century. And it deals with how he was uncovered uh, as an informant uh, by the Commercial Appeal corporate uh, newspaper uh, based in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Martin Luther King uh, will be commemorating him a week from tomorrow on January the 15th. It will represent the 95th uh, anniversary of the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Right now, we want to play a speech, uh, a sermon delivered by Dr. King, entitled The Three Dimensions of a Complete Life, delivered uh, in April of 1967 in Chicago.
9: I want to use as a subject from which to preach the three dimensions of a complete life. You know, they used to tell us in Hollywood that in order for a movie to be complete, it had to be three-dimensional. Well, this morning I want to seek to get over to each of us that if life itself is to be complete, it must be three-dimensional. Many, many centuries ago, there was a man by the name of John who found himself in prison out on a lonely, obscure island called Patmos. And I've been in prison just enough to know that it's a lonely experience. And when you are incarcerated in such a situation, you are deprived of almost every freedom but the freedom to think, the freedom to pray, the freedom to reflect and to meditate. And While John was out on this lonely island in prison, he lifted his vision to high heaven He saw descending out of heaven a new heaven and a new earth. Over in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, it opens by saying, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And one of the greatest glories of this new city of God that John saw was its completeness. It was not up on one side and down on the other, but it was complete in all three of its dimensions. And so in this same chapter, as we look down to the 16th verse, John says, Lent. And the breadth and the height of it are equal. In other words, this new city of God, this new city of ideal humanity, is not an unbalanced entity, but is complete on all sides. I think John is saying something here in all of the symbolism of this uh, text and the symbolism of this chapter. He's saying at bottom that life as it should be, and life at its best, is a life that is complete on all sides. And there are three dimensions of any complete life to which we can fitly give the words of this text, length, breadth, and height. Now the length of life, as we shall use it here, is the inward concern for one's own welfare. In other words, it is that inward concern that causes one to push forward to achieve his own goals and ambitions. The breath of life, as we shall use it here, is the outward concern for the welfare of others, and the height of life is the upward reach for God. Now you have got to have all three of these to have a complete life. Now let's turn for the moment to the length of life. I said that this is the dimension of life where we are concerned with developing our inner power. In a sense, this is the selfish dimension of life.
3: There
9: is such a thing as rational and healthy self-interest. A great Jewish rabbi, the late Joshua Liebman, wrote a book some years ago entitled Peace of Mind. And he has a chapter in that book entitled, Love Thyself Properly. And what he says in that chapter, in substance, is that before you can love other selves adequately, you've got to love your own self properly. You know, a lot of people don't love
3: themselves.
9: They go through life with deep and haunting emotional conflicts. So the length of life means that you must love yourself. And you know what loving yourself also means? It means that you've got to accept yourself. So many people are busy trying to be somebody else. God gave all of us something and something significant, and and we must pray every day, asking God to help us to accept ourselves. That means everything. Too many Negroes are ashamed of themselves,
3: ashamed
9: of being black. A Negro got to rise up and say from the bottom of his soul, I am somebody. I have a rich, noble, and proud heritage. However it exploded and however painful my history has been, I'm black, but I'm black and beautiful.
3: This is what we got to say. We've
9: got to accept ourselves. And we must pray, Lord, help me to accept myself every day. Help me to accept my two. I remember when I was in college... I majored in sociology, and all sociology majors had to take a course that was cri- uh, required called statistics. And statistics can be very complicated. You've got to have a mathematical mind, a real knowledge of geometry, and you've got to know how to find the mean, the mode, and the medium. I never will forget, I took this course. and. I had a fellow classmate who could just work that stuff out, you know, and he could uh, do his homework in about an hour. We would often go to the lab or the workshop, and he would just work it out in about an hour, and it was over for him, and I was trying to do what he was doing. I was trying to do mine in an hour, (laughs) and the more I tried to do it in an hour, the more I was flunking out in the course. And I had to come to a very hard conclusion. I had to sit down and say, Now, Martin Luther King, Leif Kane has a better mind than you. Sometimes you have to acknowledge that. And I had to say to myself, Now, he may be able to do it in an hour, but it takes me two or three hours to do it. I was not willing to accept myself. I was not willing to accept my tools and my limitations. But you know in life we are called upon to do this. A Ford car trying to be a Cadillac is absurd, but if a Ford will accept itself as a Ford, it can do many things that a Cadillac could never do. It can get in parking spaces that a Cadillac can never get in. And in life, some of us are Fords, and some of us are Cadillacs. Yeah. Moses says in Green Pastures, Lord, I ain't much, but I's all I got. Yeah. The principle of self-acceptance
3: yeah. is a
9: basic principle in life. Not other thing about the length of life. That's accepting ourselves and our tools. We must discover what we are called to do. And once we discover it, we should set out to do it with all of the strength and all of the power that we have in our system. After we've discovered what God called us to do, after we've discovered our life's work We should set out to do that work so well that the living, the dead, or the unborn couldn't do it any better. Now this does not mean that everybody will do the so-called big recognized things of life. Very few people will rise to the heights of genius in the arts and the sciences. Very few collectively will rise to certain professions. Most of us will have to be content to work in the fields and in the factories and in, on the streets, but we must see the dignity of all labor. When I was in Montgomery, Alabama, I went to a shoe shop quite often known as the Gordon Shoe Shop, and there was a fella in there that used to shine my shoes and it was just an experience to witness this fella shining my shoes. He would get that rag, you know, and he could bring music out of it. And I said to myself, this fella has a PhD in shoe shining. What I'm saying to you this morning, my friend, even if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, go on out and sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Handel and Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, Here lives a great street sweeper who swept his job well. If you can't be a pine on the top of the hill, be a scrub in the valley, but be the best little scrub on the side of the hill. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. It isn't by size that you win or you fail. Be the best of whatever you are. And when you do this, when you do this, you've mastered the length of life.
3: This onward push
9: to the end of self-fulfillment is the end of a person's life. Now, don't stop here, though. You know, a lot of people get no further in life than the length. They, They develop their inner powers. They do their jobs well. You know, they try to live as if nobody else lives in the world but themselves. Mm -hmm. And they use everybody as mere tools to get to where they're going. They don't love anybody but themselves. And the only kind of love that they really have for other people is utilitarian love. You know, they just love people that they can use. A lot of people never get beyond the first dimension of life. They use other people as mere steps to which or by which they can climb to their goals and their ambitions. These people don't work out well in life. They may go for a while. They may think they're making it all right, but there is a law. They call it the law of gravitation in the physical universe, and it works, it's final, it's inexorable, whatever goes up can come down, you shall reap what you sow, God has structured this universe that way, and he who goes through life not concerned about others will be a subject victim of this law, So I move on and say that it is necessary to add breath to length. Now, the breath of life is the outward concern for the welfare of others, as I say. And a man has not begun to live until he can rise above the narrow confines of his own individual concerns. To the broader concerns of all humanity. One day Jesus told a parable. You will remember that parable. He had a man that came to him to talk with him about some very profound concerns. And they finally got around to the question, Who is my neighbor? This man wanted to, to debate with Jesus. This question could have very easily ended up in thin air as a theological or philosophical debate. You remember Jesus immediately pulled that question out of thin air and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. He talked about a certain man who fell among thieves, two men came by, and they just kept going, and then finally another man came, a member of another race who stopped and helped him. And that parable ends up saying that this good Samaritan was a great man. He was a good man because he was concerned about more than himself. Now, you know, there are many ideas about why the priest and the Levite passed and didn't stop to help that man. A lot of ideas about it. Some say that they were going to a a, a church service. And they were running a little late, you know, and couldn't be late for church. So they they kept going because they had to get uh, down to the synagogue. And then there are others who would say that they were involved in the priesthood, and consequently there was a priestly law which said that if you were going to administer the sacrament or what have you, you couldn't touch a human body 24 hours before worship. Now there's another possibility. It is possible that they were going down to Jericho to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's another possibility. And they may have passed by because they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal source rather than one individual victim. That's yeah. a possibility. Yeah. But you know, when I think about this parable, I, I think of another possibility, as I use my imagination. It's possible that these men passed by on the other side because they were afraid.
3: You know, the Jericho
9: road is a dangerous road. <laughs> I've been on it, and I know I never will forget. when Mrs. King and I were in the Holy Land some time ago, we rented a car, and we drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho, a distance of about 16 miles. And you get on that Jericho road. And I'm telling you, it's a winding, a curving, meandering. Road, very conducive for robbery. And I said to my wife, I said, now I can see why Jesus used this road as the occasion for his parable. Here you are when you start out in Jerusalem, you're 2,200 feet above sea level. And when you get down to Jericho, 16 miles later, I mean, you yet 16 miles from Jerusalem, you're 1,200 feet below sea level. During the days of Jesus, that road came to the point of being the bloody, known as the bloody path. So when I think about the priests and the Levites, I think those brothers were afraid. They were just like me. I was going out to my father's house in Atlanta the other day. He lives about three or four miles from me, and you go out there by going down Simpson Road. And then when I came back later that night, and brother, I can tell you Simpson Road is a winding road, and a fellow was standing out there trying to flag me down, and I, I, I felt that he needed some help. I knew he needed help, but I, I didn't know, it. I'll be honest with you, I kept going.
3: Uh, <clears throat> I, I
9: wasn't really willing to take the risk. I say to you this morning that the first question that the priest was the first question that I asked on that Jericho Road of Atlanta known as Simpson Road. The first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan came by
3: and he reversed the question. Not
9: what will happen to me if I stop to help this man, but what will happen to this man if I do not stop to help him? This was why that man was good and great. He was great because he was willing to take a risk for humanity. He was willing to ask what will happen to this man, not what will happen to me. This is what God needs today. Men and women who will ask what will happen to humanity if I don't help. What will happen to the civil rights movement if I don't participate? What will happen to my city if I don't vote? What will happen to the sick if I don't visit them? This is how God judges people in the final analysis. Oh, there will be a day. The question won't be, how many awards did you get in life? Not that day. It won't be, how popular were you? in your social setting. That won't be the question that day.
3: It will not ask
9: how many degrees you've been able to get. The question that day will not be concerned with whether you are a Ph.D. or no D. It will not be concerned with whether you went to Morehouse or whether you went to No House. The question that day will not be how beautiful is your house. Question that day will not be how much money did you accumulate? How much did you have in stocks and
3: bonds?
9: Question that day will not be what kind of automobile did you have? On that day the question will be what did you do for others?
3: And
9: I can hear somebody saying Lord, uh, I did a lot of things in life. I did my job well. The world honored me for doing my job. I did a lot of things, Lord. I went to school and I studied hard. I accumulated a lot of money, Lord. That's what I did. Seems that I can hear the Lord of life saying, but I was hungry and you fed me not. I was sick and you visited me not. I was naked and you clothed me not. I was in prison and you weren't concerned about me. So get out of my face.
3: What did you do for others? This is
9: the breath of life.
3: Somewhere
9: along the way, we must learn that there is nothing greater than to do something for
3: others.
9: This is the way I've decided to go the rest of my days. That's what I'm concerned about. John, uh, if you and Bernard happen to be around when I come to the latter days, in that moment across the Jordan. I want you to tell them that I made a request. I don't want a long funeral. In fact, I don't even need a eulogy more than one or two minutes. I hope that I will live so well the rest of the day.
3: I don't know how long I'll live and I'm not concerned
9: about that. But I hope I can live so well that the preacher can get up and say he was faithful. That's all. That's enough. That's the servant I'd like to hear. Well done, by good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. You've been concerned about others. That's where I want to go from this point on the rest of my days. He who is greatest among you
3: shall be your servant. I want to be a servant. I want to be a witness for my Lord,
9: do something for others. And don't forget in doing something for others that you have what you have because of others.
3: Don't forget that. We are
9: tied together in life and in the world, and you may think you got all you got by yourself. You know before you got out here to church this morning, you were dependent on more than half of the world. You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and you reach over for a bar of soap and that's handed to you by a Frenchman. You reach over for a sponge and that's given to you by a Turk. You reach over for a towel and that comes to your hand from the hands of a Pacific Islander. And then you go on to the kitchen to get your breakfast. You reach on over to get a little coffee and that's poured in your cup by a South American. Maybe you decide that you want a little tea this morning, only to discover that that's poured in your cup by a Chinese. Yeah. Or maybe you want a little cocoa that's poured in your cup by a West African. Yeah. Then you want a little bread, and you reach over to get it, and that's given to you by the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. Before you get through eating breakfast in the morning, you are dependent on more than half of the world.
3: Yeah. That's Go the ahead. way God structured it. Go ahead. Go ahead.
9: That's the way God structured this world. So let us be concerned about others because we are dependent on others. But don't stop here either. You know, a lot of people master the length of life. And they master the breadth of life, but they stop right there. Now, if life is to be complete, we must move beyond our self-interest. Oh,
3: yeah. Oh, yeah.
9: We must move beyond humanity
3: yeah.
9: and reach up,
3: All right. yeah. way up, All right.
9: for the God of the universe
3: yeah. Yeah.
9: whose purpose changes not.
3: Yeah.
9: Now, a lot of people have neglected this third dimension. You know, the interesting thing is a lot of people neglect it and don't even know they are neglecting it. They just get they get involved in other things.
3: All right.
9: You know, there are two kinds of atheism. Atheism is the theory that there is no God. Now one kind is a theoretical kind where somebody just sits down and starts thinking about it and they come to the conclusion that there is no God. The other kind is a practical atheism. And that kind goes out of living as if there is no God. And you know there are a lot of people who affirm the existence of God with their lips and they deny his existence with their lives. You've seen these people who have a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. They deny the existence of God with their lives and they just become so involved in other things.
3: Oh, yeah.
9: They become so involved in getting a big bank account. Yeah. Yeah. They become so involved in getting a beautiful house which we all should have. They become so involved in getting a beautiful car that they unconsciously just forget about God. Oh, yeah. oh,
3: yeah.
9: There are those who become so involved in looking at the man-made lights of the city, that they unconsciously forget rise up and look at that great cosmic light and think about it that gets up in the eastern horizon every morning and moves across the sky yes. with a kind of symphony of motion and paints its technicolor across the blue, a light that man can never make. Yes. They become so involved in looking at the skyscraping buildings of the loop of Chicago
3: or Empire
9: State Building of New York, yes. they unconsciously forget to think about the gigantic mountains that kiss the skies as if to bathe their peaks in the lofty blue, right. something that man could never make. Right. They become so busy thinking about radar and that television. All right. They unconsciously forget to think about the stars that bedeck the heavens like swinging lanterns of eternity, those stars that appear to be shiny silvery pins sticking in the magnificent blue pincushion. They become so involved in thinking about man's progress.
3: That
9: they forget to think about the need for God's power in history. They end up going days and days, not knowing that God is not with them. And I'm here to tell you today that we need God. Modern man may know a great deal, but his knowledge does not eliminate God.
3: And
9: I tell you this morning that God is here to stay. A few theologians are trying to say that God is dead.
6: This recording is briefly interrupted at this point.
9: i asking them about it because it disturbs me to know that God died and I didn't have a chance to attend the funeral. They haven't been able to tell me yet the date of his death. They haven't been able to tell me yet who the coroner was that pronounced him dead. They haven't been able to tell me yet where he's buried. You see, when I think about God, I I know his name. He said somewhere uh, back in the Old Testament, I want you to go out, Moses, and tell them I am sent you. And he said, just to make it clear, let them know that uh, my last name is the same as my first. I am that I am.
3: Make that clear.
9: I am, and God is the only being in the universe that can say I am and put a period behind yeah. Each of us sitting here has to say, I am because of my parents.
3: Yeah.
9: I am because of, of the environmental conditions. Yeah. I am because of certain hereditary circumstances. I am because of God, but God is the only being that can just say, I am, and stop right there. I am that I am, and he's here to stay. Let nobody make us feel that we don't need God. As I come to my conclusion this morning, I want to say that we should search for him. We were made for God, and we will be restless until we find rest in him. And I say to you this morning that this is the personal faith that has kept me going.
3: I'm not worried about
9: the future. You know, even on this race question, I'm not worried. I was down in Alabama the other day, and... I started thinking about the state of Alabama where we work so hard and they continue to elect the Wallace. Down in my home state of Georgia, we have another sick governor by the name of Lester Maddox. And all of these things can get you confused, but, but they don't worry me.
3: Because the God that I worship is a
9: god that has a way of saying even to kings and even to governors be still and know that i'm god and god has not yet turned over this universe to lester maddox and lerleen wallace somewhere i read the earth is the lord
3: and
9: the fullness thereof and i'm going on because i have faith in him I do not know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. And if he'll guide us and hold our hand, we'll go on in. I remember down in Montgomery, Alabama, an experience that I'd like to share with you when we were in the midst of the bus boycott. We had a marvelous old lady... we affectionately called Sister Paula. She was a wonderful lady, about 72 years old, and she was still working at that age. During the boycott, she would walk every day to and from work. She was the one that somebody stopped one day and said, Wouldn't you like to ride? And she said, No. And then the driver moved on and stopped and thought. Uh, and backed up a little and said, well, aren't you tired? She said, yes, my feet's is tired, but my soul is resting. She was a marvelous lady. And one week I can remember that I had gone through a very difficult week. Threatening calls had come in all day and all night the night before. And I was beginning to falter and to get weak within, and to lose my courage. And I never will forget that I went to the mass meeting that Monday night very discouraged and a little afraid and wondering whether we were going to win the struggle. And I got up to make my talk that night, but it didn't come out with strength and power. Sister Paula came up to me after the meeting and said, Son, what's wrong with you? Said you didn't talk strong enough tonight. And I said uh, nothing is wrong, Sister Paula. I'm all right. Say you can't fool me. Said uh, something wrong with you. And then she went on to say these words: Is the white folks doing something to you that you don't like? I said everything is going to be all right, Sister Paula. Then she finally said, Now come close to me. And let me tell you some one more time, and I want you to hear it this time. She said, now, I done told you we's with you. She said, now, even if we ain't with you,
3: the
9: Lord is with you. And she concluded by saying, the Lord's going to take care of you. I've seen many things since that day. I've gone through many experiences since that night in Montgomery, Alabama. Since that time, Sister Pollard has died. Since that time, I've been in more than 18 jail cells. Since that time, I've come perilously close to death at the hands of a demented Negro woman Since that time, I've seen my home bombed three times. Since that time, I've had to live every day under the threat of death. Since that time, I've had many frustrating and bewildering nights. But over and over again, I can still hear Sister Pollard's words. God's going to take care of you. So today, I can face any man... And any woman with my feet solidly placed on the ground, right. my head in the air, because I know that when you're right, God will fight your battle. Right. Darker yet may be the night, harder yet may be right. the fight.
3: Yep.
9: Just stand up All right. with that which is right seems that I can hear a voice speaking even this morning saying to all of us, stand up for what is right. Stand up for what is just. Lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. Yes, I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roar. i felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus stand still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. I go on in believing that. Reach out and find the breath of life. You may not be able to define God in philosophical terms, Men through the ages have tried to talk about him. Yeah. Plato said that he was the architectonic good. Aristotle called him the move mover. Yep. Hegel called him the absolute whole.
3: Right, yeah. Then
9: there was a man named Paul Tillich who called him being itself.
3: Right,
9: we don't need to know all, 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 all of these
3: things. Yeah.
9: Maybe, maybe, maybe another way. One day you ought to rise up and say, I know him because he's the lily of the valley. He's a bright and morning star. He's a rose of Sharon. He's a godlock in the time of battle. And then somewhere you ought to just reach out and say, He's my everything. He's my mother and my father. He's my sister and my brother. He's a friend to the friendless. This is the God of the universe. If you believe in him and worship him, some will have him in your life. You will smile when others around you are crying.
1: This is the power of God. Go out this morning. Welcome back. And that was a sermon delivered by uh, the late uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. on April 9th of 1967 in Chicago at the Covenant Church. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, January the 7th, 2024. We've been broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition uh, of, of the Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to uh, read the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go uh, to our website, and that's at Pan-African News that That's Pan African News dot And we're going to close out our program of uh, the music of Harold Land's Quartet, Jazz at the Cellar. This is from 1958. This is Abiyomi Azikaway signing off, and have a beautiful week. For
6: you who are interested in jazz. The name of Harold Land should ring a bell with you because Harold has appeared with all the greats of jazz in the United States. (laughs) We are very privileged to welcome the Harold Land Quartet.